Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you all this morning. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Zephaniah. Now, we are in our fourth Sunday of Advent, which was already mentioned during our candle lighting this morning. And what Advent really is, it comes from the idea of of waiting, of longing for something, of waiting for something. And so the question is, what are we actually waiting for? That'll be the question this text asks us, but also the question for us this morning, what are we waiting for? And for many of us, we're waiting for Christmas. It's six days away. We're excited. We're ready. All our Advent calendars, I know my girls, all their countdowns are, are approaching, and they're, they're, they're increasing in excitement for that day. But Advent is really about two things. It's first about the fact that Christ has come. In and through the incarnation, Christ has come. But it also looks forward to Christ's second coming. Through Advent, we're really preparing to, to wait for Christ to come again. Our text this morning, Zephaniah chapter 3, starting in verse 14, is about a group of people who have been condemned by God for their sin. If we read the first verses of Zephaniah, it is very clear they are in sin. And yet, as this story unfolds, we get to the end of Zephaniah, and these people who were condemned are now singing. There's this rich picture of redemption as people are waiting for what is to come, and that thing that is to come changes radically as God steps into the picture. These are really rich words, the words that I hope that as we read them together today and study them together today, they really really sing to us, that they really speak to us in a way that is hope-filled and wonderfully encouraging, because this is God's word to us this morning, and it is rich and it is true. So let's stand this morning for the reading of God's word from Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord." Let's pray. Father, thank you for this this word, this truth that you offer, this hope, this encouragement. Lord, as we come to this passage together this morning, Lord, would you give us a sense of the the truth that you are communicating. The wonder of these words, Lord, would not just be wonder on a page, but something through the power of your spirit that you impart to us, that you would show us what is here, that you would gift this to us. We ask this in your name, asking that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning. Amen. You may be seated. So growing up around Christmas time, sometime in early December, there was always this 
uh, set of cassette tapes that showed up at our house. Uh, I don't know exactly how they showed up. They were these Christmas stories on cassette tape that showed up every year for most of my childhood. And we'd put them on, we'd listen to them when we were driving for, for Christmas things, and they were your typical Christmas stories. They all sort of had the same plot. There's somebody who really, at the beginning of the story, doesn't want to celebrate Christmas. I'm not just talking about the Grinch or the Scrooge, but that, that kind of mentality where there's somebody who just really isn't into all of the festivities and all of the wonderment and all of that. And then at the end of the short story, 10, 15 minutes later, that person has been transformed. That person is transfixed by the wonder of Christmas and all of the delight, all the wonder. And really, it's a story we know well. If you begin one of these stories, you know how it's going to end up. But for some of us, we're actually sort of caught up in a story like that. Uh, maybe this Christmas, you know, we're decorated, everything is wonderful, you drive around Bernie, you drive around small towns, I drove down Main Street yesterday, and it's lights everywhere. And we sort of have this full court press of Christmas cheer, like you better get in line with the story. And maybe you just don't feel that way. Maybe Christmas is, is difficult. Maybe Christmas is a time that actually you're ready to, to just sort of get through it. Some of us are, are ready. We're ready for the joy-filled faces, delicious dinners, all of that. We are primed and ready. And others of us are really struggling. But even, of us, even if we are joy-filled, even if we know the, the wonder of Christmas and we're sort of charting with what we're supposed to be saying, we know that you know, there's only so much that one joy-filled day can really fulfilled, right? We know the Christmas letdown. We know that the real world, so to speak, starts again in January. And sometimes Christmas is sort of a, a, a facade that we put up, and we're going to be happy for a few weeks, and then, yeah, I guess we'll go back to my life, whatever that might mean. The good news for us this morning is that this passage actually takes up the question of what are we longing for and gives us a really substantive answer something that will support us. What are we truly longing for? Well, it begins, as we look through this passage, with sin, shame, and, and all that's wrong. See, to know what we're really longing for, we first need to actually look at what's, what's wrong with the world. The good news of Christmas, the good news of the gospel, really begins with seeing what is broken, fallen, and sinful in our world so that we can actually see the wonder and the joy. This passage we read, you'll notice, is all sort of in the major, major key. Everything is happy, everything is good, it's sing, it's shout, all is going well. But if we just look at the situation described, we realize that the good news comes because there is some really difficult news. The context here is God's people in Judah that in a few generations, few years, will face exile. That will be their story. That will come. They will experience that in a period of, of time. And even as they know that's coming, there have been some good things that happened. Josiah is king. There are some reforms. People are in part turning back to God. But there's also this sense that that exile will come. And yet, even as they know that will come, they, they sing. And why can they sing? Well, they sing because all of these problems have been taken away, but what are these problems? Look, look, look at verse 15 with me. It says this, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Well, that means that there were judgments against you. If you flip back to the beginning of the book of Zephaniah, we see this in Zephaniah chapter 1. 
and verse 2, it says this, I will utterly sweep everything away from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. What a stark contrast, that language, from what we see here. And if we read all of Zephaniah, we see that God's people have sinned against him. They have become complacent. They have told lies. They have done injustice. They have been deceitful. So many things they've done that if they walked away from what God had asked them to do, this is what is wrong with the world. It is the sin that God's people have done. They are rightly deserving of this, this punishment, that there is a wage that they must pay for what they have done. And it's not, it's not just the sin here of them, but it's all the fallenness and brokenness of the world that they are wrestling against. They have enemies, verse 15. There are those who, these aren't just sort of spiritual enemies, real physical enemies that are threatening them. And they're afraid. Verse 16, it says, fear not. Well, the implication there is that they were uh, afraid. And it says later in that verse, let not your hearts, your hands, sorry, grow weak. The sense there is not just sort of being exhausted, but almost of of a paralyzed fear, your hands unable to move because they are afraid of what is to come. This is all that is wrong. This is all that makes us long for things to be different. A way of summarizing the the context of this passage is that it is not the way it's supposed to be. It is not the way God created it. There is a fallen, broken reality because of sin that was brought into the world and the sin that we do that affects this, this world. There's mourning. Look at verse 18. It says this, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. This is the, the pain, the, the, the situation that we find a, this, this text in. Not just, being, not just sin, but also being sinned against. Verse 19 talks of oppressors, those who are lame, those who are outcast, those who are experiencing shame. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. All of this is the, the, the wreckage of Eden, so to speak, that God's people find themselves in and participating in through their own volition and their own sin. And it doesn't take us much to move from this text to our own day, does it? A world that that looks kind of like that, where there is oppression, where there is sin on every newspaper page that we click through. This is really the world that we find ourselves in. And it's, it's a world like this that we say, then, then why, why would we sing? Why would we have this joy? And so some of us look at this Christmas season and we say, really, these things don't seem to fit. All of this brokenness, all of this sin. How do we move forward? What do we do with that? Well, first, this passage asks us to acknowledge that there really is suffering that we wait through. It doesn't turn a blind eye to suffering. It doesn't just sort of say, here's some bad stuff, and now suddenly switch to a major key. It, it, it notes that there is real difficult things. There's spiritual difficulty, physical difficulty, all woven together in this fallen, broken world that we live in. And some of us may look at that and just sort of say, there's, there's really no way this could ever change. This is just what we're, we're stuck with. We're stuck with a world that looks like this, and so I'm just going to try to kind of placate my hungers, go on, do the best I can, and it's just going to be the way that it, that it is. In a sense, we, we try to paper over the reality because we don't really want to look at what we're really longing for. I think some of us walk through our lives and say, you know, I've just got enough, 
and I'm just going to kind of keep going. And I, I don't really want to ask hard questions about where my joy comes from, where my satisfaction comes from. I've got just enough, and I don't really want to pull back the curtain, as it were. Last Sunday night, we had our youth Christmas party. And every year we do this, we have a, a gift exchange. You might have seen that in the announcements. All the students bring a gift, and it's, it's a fun sort of time of exchanging gifts. One gift in particular this year caught some attention, though. It was impeccably wrapped to look like a mini fridge. So somebody walked in with his gift about this big, wrapped perfectly, the handle, everything. It looked like a mini fridge. But we had a 5 to $10 limit, so it clearly wasn't a mini fridge. None of the kids really wanted to touch that present, open it, because they were suspicious of it. What, what is in there, right? It's probably not a mini fridge. It's probably something worse. I, I don't even remember what it was. They can probably tell you. But they reminded me, I think, of this reality that we see sometimes in our fallen, broken world. We, we look at that and we say, that looks good. I'm just not going to ask any questions. I'm not going to sort of poke under the surface and say, what's really there? What is holding up my hope? And sometimes in this Christmas season, we just sort of say, yeah, I'm, I'm happy because I'm seeing people and I'm going to get some gifts and give some gifts, have some good food. It's going to be good. And those are all right and good things that God has given us, but those aren't the ultimate things, are they? They're not what really sustains and supports us. But what's beautiful about God's word here is it never sort of shies away from those things. It never papers over the hard places, talks about them. So there are hard things that God's people are going to walk through. There are hard things that God brings into our lives for the good of us and for the glory of his, of his name. And even as those hard things are talked about and exposed, there's, there's a real hope that comes along with that and turns in this text to the song's salvation and all that's right. If you look earlier in Zephaniah chapter 3, we see that all that is bringing us up to this point, back in verses 9, 11, and 12, is that God is the one who is coming in and doing something. There is judgment that he is rightly bringing on his people, but then God steps in and says, I'm going to do something. In our text today, verse 17 really brings that to light. It says that there is a mighty one who will save. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. This is God bringing salvation, stepping into this story and doing something about it. Verse 15 is really the gospel. It says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. All the punishment that was due you, God has taken that away. Those who accuse us, the satanic accuser who comes and says, you are not following all of that is done away with because of what God has done. He has taken away the judgments. He has cleared away our, our enemies. He has freed us from shame. Now, this is a story, again, we know, we've heard this, but these next words in verse 17 are some of the most startling words in the Old Testament. Some of the most startling words in terms of what they communicate about God, his character, and his response to his people who are sinners. He says this, as he is the mighty one who comes and saves, I will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. If those words weren't in Scripture and someone offered them to us, I think most of us would say, I don't think that's, that's theologically accurate. Because that is such a startling statement. That the one who created you, the one who made you, 
the one who knows everything about you, rejoices over you with singing. And not just sort of a a, a tepid, sort of subdued song, but with great rejoicing, exalting, rejoicing over you with gladness. Next part there says, he will quiet you by his love. It's, it's a little uncertain what the, the language is saying there. It also has the meaning of he will be quiet by you with his love. A sense of he is so amazed and in love that there is a quietness that comes on God, even then as he responds with this loud singing and this exalting. I don't know if you like having happy birthday sung to you. I was talking to somebody recently. It was his birthday. We were with a group, and he came to me, and he said, don't make them sing happy birthday. He didn't want that. And I think that's a shared experience. Sometimes it feels a little bit awkward to have even like 30 of your closest friends sort of sing over you. We kind of get red in the face and we're like, let's, let's get over, let's get to the cake. But this is the creator, the one who knows you, who sings over you, rejoices over you with loud singing. It's a wonderful picture. One that I think we, we need to hear. These are the highest notes, the sweetest, most awe-inspiring notes you can imagine that are sung over you. How can this be? How can he re- rejoice over us in this way? How can, as verse 18 says, he will gather those who mourn to the festival, bringing them in? How can all of this happen? Well, it comes back to that mighty one who will save. The mighty one who will save. Who is that mighty one? Well, there are a few ways of looking at that. For these people here, they would have thought of just the God they knew, Yahweh, the one, the Lord, as it is said. But that name, the mighty one to save, is also picked up in Isaiah, isn't it? A few weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah 9 and verse 6, where it talks about the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. That same word applied to who? To Jesus. The one who comes to save. There's a, there's a connection here to the hope and of the Messiah who is to come. He is the mighty one. We get here through the cross, the hinge that turns the mighty warrior who earlier in Zephaniah comes to bring judgment and now comes with great song is the atonement brought by Jesus Christ. Because of what Christ has done, our our God looks at us and, and rejoices in us, sings over us, delights in us. It's wonderful, wonderful news. And and what do we do with that? Well, there's a response. If we look back at verse 14, it says, sing aloud. That's not a suggestion. That's actually a command. It's an imperative. You are to sing. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. From the very core of our beings, we respond to this wonderful truth of God singing in over us with our own song. We sing to God. Singing on Sunday morning is not just sort of a perfunctory thing, but it's something that we do in response to the gospel. We sing loud. We sing. There's almost a a script that is given to shape our hearts into proper response to the gospel. Now, There's a a part of us that might hear this and say, well, I I see what it's saying there. I kind of get the movement. God sings over us. We sing back. But but this couldn't be true of me. This couldn't be true of me. Maybe this is true of some other people here who have done a few extra things, but this couldn't really be true of me. And maybe one way we say, well, it's talking about, about Israel. It's talking about people in the Old Testament. It's not really talking about me. 
Well, as you saw when we walked through the book of Romans, Romans 11, we've been grafted in. We are part of God's people. These words, these promises in the Old Testament are true of us as we're joined to Christ. This This is true of us. So you can't sort of get out of this on a technicality. You might also say, well, this is talking to a large group of people, so it's just generally speaking that God sort of rejoices over his people. It's not a fair reading of of how God deals with his people. He deals with his people as a group, but he also deals with them as individuals. This is for you and for all of us who have faith in Christ, this wonderful song. I think the real reason that most of us struggle to believe this is is we, we know what we have done. There is shame in our lives. There are things that we have maybe not told a single other living person that we are deeply ashamed of. And we say, God knows that, and there's no way he could respond to me in this way. But in moments when we do that, what we're doing is we're selling the gospel short. What does it say in verse 15? The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. That's that's all of it. That's all of the judgments against you. God has taken away everything that you have done. He now responds to you with this delight and this, this welcome. The Christian counselor, Ed Welch, has put it this way. He says, the Bible, as it turns out, is all about shame and its remedy. All about shame and its remedy. All about sin and it being taken away and now God delighting in us the way that it sees is shown to us here. This should move us to, to some wonder, some delight. My family, a few, few nights ago, drove past one of the Christmas displays in town. You know, some of these houses that sort of go all out, have thousands of lights, and they jam up their neighborhood traffic as everybody goes and looks at it. Um, so we did that with our, with our girls, and it's a house we've gone to probably four times since we've been here. And it, thousands of lights, perfectly choreographed, all this kind of stuff going on. Our girls are transfixed in wonder. And, and my wife and I look at each other and say, is this as good as the last year's? It's like, and, and I would still argue it wasn't, but that's not the point. The point is that sometimes we can look at something wonderful so many times that we just sort of start shrugging. Say, so yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. And that's sometimes what we do at Christmas, that we, we look at trees, we look at the manger, we look at all the wonderful things and, and all that it points to, this incarnation reality. And you say, yeah, yeah, I, I know that. Passages like this must confront that complacency, must confront that and show us the wonder of the story again. There is this, this mutual ecstasy between, what, between God and his creation as they rejoice with great gladness about what he has done. This isn't a, a guilt trip. You shouldn't sort of feel at this moment, man, yeah, I really should be more joyful. I'm going to try harder. No, it's, it's to say all of that sin, even your complacency, is what Jesus died for. So that this is now what is true. That Christ came in time and, and space. This is really the, the, the place, I think, that we can begin to confront our, our complacency and our apathy is to remind ourselves that in a time and a place, concrete reality, God came to earth. That the incarnation is, is true, that God became man, and that we don't have to manufacture joy, but even in moments of grief and difficulty, there is, is something substantive that answers our longings that God offers to us. This is the good news of, of Christmas. This is the hope that we are offered. 
And yet there's a reality, even as we see the, the shame, the sin, all that's wrong, we see the salvation that God brings in, there's also this, this tension that you might feel. You might say, yeah, I, I get that there was this sin, I get that there's salvation, but, but what about right now? The tension of living uh, our normal lives and, and still the, the fallen, broken world that we live in. This passage acknowledges that. There's a waiting in hope for all that's to come. It's really what Advent is, is about. It's waiting for the second coming. It's waiting for all that is good to finally come the way that God had promised it to come. Look at verse 19 and 20. It says a few times, Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. Verse 20 begins, At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together. There is something that God's people are waiting for, a time when things will be put to right. The German theologian Karl Rahner put it this way. He says this, Men have made the whole of human history a single great Advent choir. What is he getting at? A single great Advent choir. It's a, it's a picture of all of humanity looking at the world, looking at the things that they experience and say, there's something not right here. There's pain, there's suffering, there's, there's sin, there's my sin, there's the sin of my neighbor who sins against me. There's something that we are, are longing for. And as we join this great Advent choir, we see that there is, is hope. Now, there's a, there's a near fulfillment to this passage, and there's also ones that look, look forward. Part of the fulfillment of this, this, this hope of, of them being brought in, gathered together, renowned and praised, is when God's people will come back from the exile. When they go out and come back, there will be some fulfillment there. But that in and of itself is not enough to fulfill the, the full promise and the full wonder that is, that is offered here. There's a farther part that reaches to, to Jesus. As we already noted, that there is this wonderful reality of a Savior who comes. One who comes and brings, brings hope. But even as we now know that, there is the, the final and the full fulfillment of what this passage is saying. I believe this passage points not just to Christ, but through Christ to the new heavens and the new earth. When all is put to right. When God himself comes. Did, did you note that in verse 17, what, what, is, what is tied to the, to the hope of all of this? It says that the Lord your God is in your midst. Now that's a theme throughout scripture, that God would be in their midst. From Genesis to, to Exodus, Leviticus, that is a, a major theme of how is a, a holy God going to dwell with this unholy people. When we get to the book of Revelation, it says the dwelling place of God is with man. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're hoping for at the end of the day is not simply that we would have wonderful new creations to live in, although that is going to be wonderful. It's that we would be with God. The dwelling place of God would be with man. That is what we are longing for. We're longing for God. We received the gift of the incarnation in and through Jesus. We have received the Holy Spirit as a down payment of that. God is with us even now, and yet there's a richer, fuller sense where we will experience that in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas, that God came to make a way so that he could dwell with us in eternity. And it's because of his love. Why would God do this? Well, because of his love, because he loved us. That's simple. 
But it's, it's a wonderful truth. Because of his love, he came and did these things. He chose us because of his, his love. Ephesians talks about this as, a surpassing, as surpassing our knowledge. Something we can't quite get our, hi, our minds and our, our hands around. So how do we wait well? How do we wait well for God to come? We know the story. We know that our, our sin and shame has been dealt with, that there is this wonderful song that is, is sung over us. How do we wait well? You and I are, are probably not great at waiting. Uh, I might not speak for you. I'll speak for me. I, I'm impatient. Lines are long now, right? You, you go, and, and, and maybe what do you do when you're in a line? And, and this is probably across generations because I've been observing at HEB and Walmart what people are doing. When you're in line, everybody does this. They pull out a phone, or they, they, they call somebody, or they do something. We are chronically unable to wait as a society. And yet so much of the Christian faith is about waiting well, waiting in hope, waiting for God. Not that he is distant, not that he is far off. God has given us his spirit. He is with us. But we wait as people who, who can wait like God's people in Zephaniah. You know, these people are, are waiting. What are they waiting for? Well, exile is coming. Difficult things are coming. And, and what, do they, what are they called to do as they wait? To sing. To sing, to, to, to actually rejoice and put their hope in God because there is a real answer and a real hope to wait with song. That's a, that's a wonderful offer for us that as we wait... We're not waiting just sort of without any hope, but waiting as those, as what is verse 20 says. It says this, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. That's definite. That's not sort of a figment of your imagination. Before your eyes, when I restore your, your fortunes. Through Jesus, through the work of the Spirit, in the new heavens and the new earth, when you are restored, you will see this. That's the hope we wait for. That's what we long for and wait for during this Christmas season. We are waiting for God. So whether these next two weeks are, are some of the best weeks of your life or some of the most difficult weeks, we're still postured in the same place, waiting for God that all that we get in the next two weeks is not enough because God has offered us something better. He has offered us himself, the mighty one who will be in our midst now through the Spirit and someday fully in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, a passage like this is so rich. Lord, there's a, a part of us that might, might see this and know some of the, the wonder and the light and the joy that is offered here as you speak your love, sing your love to us through these words. Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you grow that in our hearts that we would know more of this truth, that we would we'd see our sin, we would turn from it and, and run to our Savior, the one who sings over us, delights over us and gives us hope. We ask this in your name.